Welcome to Wired AF. You're listening to episode 18 of the podcast. On the podcast, we talk about all things health and fitness. I'm Steph. I'm an osteopath and Pilates instructor. And I'm joined by Brandon. I'm Brandon. I'm a weightlifter, a nutritionist, and the head coach at Akati Fitness. On episode 18, we're going to be talking about perfect form and technique and if it actually exists or if it's just a myth. Before we get too far into the podcast, I just want to thank everyone that's been listening to all our episodes um, in the past. And we've had a lot of people message us, say they binged a few episodes in a row. Uh, and that makes us really happy to see people that are actually listening to our stuff. And we really appreciate that. So with Perfect Technique, does it actually exist? Uh, we're going to go through a few things. We're going to break it down into pretty much three parts. So we're going to talk about general movement. Um, and that's things like, you know, just your functional movements like, you know, squats, um, deadlifts, picking things off the ground. And then there's a bit of Pilates movements kind of intertwined through that. We're going to talk about weightlifting or using a load and moving with load. And then we've got rehab. So performing movements that are going to be balancing out any injuries you might have or any asymmetries you might have in your lifting um, or daily life and how that Um, And pretty much how you need to go about that. And Steph's really good with her rehab and um, she does a lot of rehab programs for people. She's been doing my rehab program for quite a while and that's been working well. I've never had the same injury twice. So I think she's doing something right. So it must be working there in your rehab plans. (laughs) There must be something right there. So we're going to get stuck straight into that. Yeah, so I guess the first thing we want to say is what do we actually mean when we say perfect technique or perfect form? What are we talking about and what do people usually think of when they think of a perfect technique or perfect form? Usually we see it in weightlifting especially. People want to talk about I'm doing a perfect squat, a perfect deadlift, I'm doing my bench press perfectly or especially in Olympic weightlifting as well, snatch and clean and jerk. Often we're aiming for that perfect technique or optimal technique because obviously if you have really great technique, it is going to benefit you with your lifting to some degree. But I guess it can be detrimental in some ways as well to focus too heavily on technique, which is why we sort of wanted to do this episode because people can get caught up in it, can't they? Oh, they definitely can get lost in that. It's like a rabbit hole with technique. And I find I've done it with clients before where the they actually go backwards and it actually works against you if you try and perfect it too much. And you, you see... If there's something, you know, a client might do something naturally in their squat or they might do something naturally in a in a pool. And if you actually just were to continue working with it, provided it's not, you know, detrimental to like the, you know, to getting injured or anything, probably fine. They end up, it ends up working out a lot better than actually trying to like drill it into them. And, and it's also a really negative experience for someone if you're always telling them they're doing something wrong. So when you do work with technique, you know, you want it to be like that compliment sandwich you know you say you know they're doing you know two or three things really well and then to to make you know to to take that next to take that next step or get to that next level there'll be one more little piece um, that you want them to work on and it's only one one thing at a time I find when you work on technique with someone so you know you're only working on one element if I coach someone for a clean and jerk um, it'll be like cool that was an awesome lift in your jerk, do this and it'll be one subtle, really cute, really small cue rather than saying, cool, in your clean, you did this, in your pull, I want you to do this, when you catch it, this and then it's, that's just too much information. Um, so yeah, we just want to try and remind people that, you know, technique, as long as it's reasonable, you're going to go really far with it. We're not saying by any means to disregard all technique. Technique's really important and it's going to get you in really great positions, especially if you have someone who has no idea what they're doing. You need to sort of guide them a little bit into what 
a good technique would look like. We're talking about the extreme of that where people try and really aim for perfect. I'm using those little inverted commas there, but perfect doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. There's so many things that go into someone's technique. Yes, we want to go for optimal positioning and optimal technique, but there's no such thing as perfect and there's no such thing as one perfect as well because my perfect might look different to your perfect. And we're starting to see that to become such a, a big thing now with CrossFit and how CrossFit athletes are lifting weights that um, they're almost, you know, in contention with, you know, qualifying it beyond, well beyond national level. And, and Yeah, well, look at Tia Claire Toomey. She went to the Olympics and she was a CrossFitter originally and she has like you know, pretty okay technique and she can be in Olympic weightlifting. So there's no reason why you have to be a complete specialist in weightlifting. And I think that whole landscape hopefully will change and there should be athletes that, you know, they can compete in another sport and they can still do really well in weightlifting. And that's true. You look at throwing athletes, you know, there's plenty of throwing athletes that can clean to over 200 and there are elite shot putters or elite um, javelin or hammer throw. There's a lot of crossover in some of those areas, and that's a really good thing. And that shows you that, you know, if someone can come from rugby and then be in three years' time be an elite weightlifter, well, how important is technique? Well, yeah, it's important, but being a really good athlete overall is going to get you really far. Yeah, and I mean, even on the flip side of that, I work with a lot of people teaching Pilates who aren't necessarily athletes and a lot of people just want to move and I think that's awesome and I guess I like to encourage people that we're aiming for optimal technique where we can so you're not going to hurt yourself but movement is better than no movement at all. So as long as they're coming in and they're moving safely, they're having fun, that's really what matters most to me. So that's going to be different in a rehab setting. If I've got someone who I'm specifically trying to get back from an injury or I'm trying to work with them to improve imbalances for a sport, well, that's a little bit different. But just your general person who wants to exercise and move and have fun and make sure that they're actually working out, you know, you can kind of disregard to some degree that perfect technique because you just want them to move, right? Isn't that better than nothing? We want them to have a really positive experience with training. Yeah. We don't want people to leave the gym and go, oh, my deadlift was shit again or um, or, or feel like that. Yeah. But, the, you know, in saying that, we're not promoting anything dangerous. We're not saying, you know, this is a Band-Aid for having shit technique and that's because it doesn't exist. No, there's some things that are applicable to everyone and we're going to get to that. So I guess on from that, we just want to say from our point of view that movement is a continuum. So we're talking about, you know, there's not a good and a bad we're talking about is this ongoing spectrum of movement on one end of the spectrum you've got movement for sport and performance and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got movement for general health and well-being um for example squats definitely and there's progressions for squats so you see a low bar back squat the benefit of a low bar back squat is you can move significantly more weight than a high bar back squat just because of the muscles that are being recruited you're using a lot more of your posterior chain than you're using um, in a high bar back squat where you stay more upright and you're using your quads to maintain an upright position which is a lot more difficult to keep your whole body you know your spine stacked on top of each other and your hips on top of each other like to keep everything upright that's a lot more challenging whereas you can lean forward in the low bar back squat and you can shift a lot more load that doesn't mean a low bar back squat is wrong, but for the general population, doing a low bar back squat is probably not going to be um, as applicable to them if you have, were, say, doing a high bar back squat and you got them to do deadlifts as well. Um, you're covering a lot more of your bases 
with training someone, low bar back squat, you've got the bar in the middle of your back. I can't imagine teaching an older person or I can't imagine teaching anyone getting them to put the bar in the back for the first time in the gym and then finding it fairly uncomfortable. Um, there's a lot more pressure on your elbows to hold the weight there. Uh, it's just a little bit more uncomfortable. So Steph and I will teach the front squat, which is a lot more applicable to daily life. You're developing your core, your, um, and it's a lot easier to keep your body stacked on top of each other to maintain the upright position, um, which is a lot you know, obviously, uh, I wouldn't say safer, but it's there's a lot less load on your lower back because those muscles aren't being recruited as much as in a low bar squat. So there's variations where, Steph just mentioned, there's things that are going to be applicable that are like a general squat and there's things that are going to be applicable to more of a performance, which is going to be lifting heavier or, you know, if it's more competition lift. Yeah, and even on that, the variations that we give might be different. So if you have someone who can't even do a squat properly to full depth, you might not even get them doing it with a bar or you might get them doing a box squat. You know, there's just so many different ways you can vary things depending on what they want to achieve. And, you know, that movement, it's not wrong because they're doing a different movement. It's just that it's not the one that's working for them and it's not the one that's aligning with their goals. On that low bar, high bar squat scenario you know you'd you would use a low bar squat for more of a powerlifter because they are going for weight and often they're really good at that deadlift hinging pattern anyway so it kind of translates really well for their squats whereas an olympic weightlifter like what we're doing with our sport that doesn't translate you know we need to be able to do we need to be able to catch a front squat and an overhead squat in olympic weightlifting so we need to have an upright torso uh, so for us a high bar back squat is going to be more applicable and it's going to be better for us but again that you need more mobility for that in your ankles, your knees, your hips, your thoracics. Um, maybe your general population can or can't achieve that. But, you know, we consider all of these things when we're thinking about technique. There's not one perfect technique, you know. We're thinking about all these things and we might have to vary things depending on all those scenarios with a, a person. I guess then the next thing we want to talk about is that not everything you see on videos or social media or everything that you read – it's not always applicable to you. It's really easy to see something on Instagram and be like, oh, that looks like a really bad lift. I don't like that. But it's like, hang on, is that even applicable to you? Um, or on the flip side, someone might be doing something beautifully. And you're like, oh my God, I want to get that perfect form. That looks so good. But can you actually achieve that? You know, it's such an individual thing. Is it, is it applicable to you? Do you need to look at it in that way? For example, there'll be someone in the gym that has really... Um just has naturally, you know, bad mobility in their ankles or the ankles are not that great um, and their knees don't go over that far over their toes and they want to do a full snatch like um, a Chinese weightlifter where their bottom is nearly touching the floor and they're catching significant amount of weight and their shoulders are significantly more flexible than, you know, their shoulders are really flexible because they've been practicing and training it for so long and this person's in there. Um, late 20s and they've not done weightlifting before and they sit in an office all day and sit down and they want to know how they can achieve that position. Well. Start when you're four years old and then when you're 25, maybe you'll get that position. <laughs> but e but even, and even then, structurally, that might not be possible. Yeah. And that's fine. So that everyone's going to have a certain angle that they can achieve in their squat as far as like their angle of their hips, as far as how deep they can go um, without, you know, rounding their back or getting hurt. And you just need to be aware of that when you do your technique. Well, that's the thing. I mean, just on that with the positioning, you look at Brandon's lifting and my lifting and they're 
they're pretty different. I mean, we're doing the same movement, you know, we'd be snatching the same, but they look really different. They're both you know? good. Yeah, of course they're very good. <laughs> but, you know, like I'm five foot four and you're six foot four just about. Six so four, yeah, I, I feel like you're six four. <laughs> So, you know, yeah, so I'm significantly shorter than Brandon is. So my limb length is a lot shorter. I've got less distance to travel. I've got really good hip mobility, really good ankle mobility, shoulders, thoracics. I've, you know, I'm just a very flexible and naturally mobile person. Um, Brandon, you're actually pretty good, but I think that your mobility is lacking in your thoracics perhaps. So then your overhead position does look a little bit different to mine, whereas you might look to someone from an outsider point of view it may look like you're dropping your chest sometimes but you're actually not what if you looked at mine and yours side by side I might look super upright in my snatch position whereas you might look like your head's forward and your shoulders are internally rotate a little bit and perhaps that's not the case it's just that that's our body position that's how we set up you know your hands are way wider than mine are because you're taller you got longer limbs you might need to start with your feet wider than I do again because you got longer limbs Definitely, and when so then when you see those things online, just keep those things in mind because what we tr- what we're trying to convey to people is you know they might look for someone um, or look for something online for a bit of inspiration of oh you might be struggling with your lifting and try and look uh, for those things, but you know just try and work with your coach and discuss those queries they might have with your coach rather than looking to online and and only making you more frustrated of why you can't achieve those things. So you know with technique as well, it's going to be dependent on the person's actual structure of their body and how they can do things too. So it's so individual, you know, you might have someone who has scoliosis in their spine. So then they look a little bit different to someone who doesn't. Uh, You might have someone who they don't have very good ankle mobility, so they can't get as low in their squat. There's so many different factors that are going to be contributing to that person's position. It's not just well, you have to achieve that. And again, if you make them feel like they can't do it or they're always doing it wrong, but actually that's just how their body is, you know, they're not going to want to come back and train. They're going to have a really hard time and they're probably going to give up because you're not letting them that it's okay to be different in their own body and to have their own body shape because, you know, it's just not fair, but everyone does have a different body shape. Are there actually dangerous movements? So we've got a few examples. One of my favorite is behind the neck. So any movement that you do behind the neck, I'm trying to uh, reduce the stigma. I think that's one of my one of my goals, one of my little mini goals in my in my um, career as personal trainer and coach is I want to get rid of that stigma. And the fitness industry is really good at saying that things are dangerous without much uh, evidence behind them or just much knowledge behind them. For example, like working um, on your hip flexor strength or things like that. And and they're obsessed with certain things at the moment. Obviously, they're ex- ex- obsessed with uh, glute activation <laughs> uh, and that's been overkilled. So with behind the neck, now, is it dangerous to press behind the neck? Obviously, no, because, uh, you know, you look at someone um, and when I get them to set up for, say, a behind the neck press, often I can have their hands wider. Often I can have their back in a better position because they're not arching to have the bar in the front of their body. Less pressure on the wrists as well. Definitely. And then when they press overhead, since their hands are wider, the bar's not going to be in front or away from that frontal plane. The bar's going to be in a nice position where it's stacked over the top of their spine. And it's a lot more, uh, anatomically, it's a lot more, you know, it's a lot stronger of a position because everything's in line. People would lead you to believe that it is dangerous. I have no idea. People, if they're straight in the neck, maybe one person told another person that, they hurt themselves one day doing behind the neck. They're probably doing it incorrectly and they probably didn't warm up for it properly. I'm not sure. Another example is 
arching your back in the bench press. Now the arch allows you to maintain your shoulders into the bench press and load up through so you can keep an optimal position in your shoulders uh, and that arch allows you to have a really strong shoulder position and it's actually really good and having a flat back position would cause you to have um, incorrect loading through your shoulders and actually make it far more challenging and far more dangerous on your body. Yeah, definitely. You know, my favorites in this particular scenario is people are often afraid of moving their spine. So like they get really afraid of um, flexing forward. So leaning forward or extension in their back. So leaning backwards or even things like twisting, like rotation in their spine as well. People get to seem to be really afraid of those and think that they're dangerous. In some circumstances, yes, those movements may aggravate pre-existing injuries, but they're not bad for your spine. Our spines are made to move. You know, they do move in all different planes of motion. Everyone's movement might be a little bit different into those planes, but, you know, you want to try and encourage those positions so that then you don't have that fear avoidance of a particular movement. If you always think, oh my God, it's so bad to flex and round my spine forward, then you're always going to be afraid anytime you do that movement, even in daily life. And so then you might be, you know, just picking up a pencil off the ground with a round back and hurt your back. It wasn't the position that hurt you. It was the fear that hurt you that maybe makes you think it's dangerous. So in my Pilates classes, especially, I like to encourage all planes of movement for those spine positions. Um, But then in saying that, you know, if you're doing something with load, like a deadlift, well, you do want to set up with preferably a neutral spine. Once you get to those top weights, you're probably going to notice there's some amount of flexion in the spine. That's just because when you get to top weights, technique tends to fail a little bit because you're at those absolute limits. So you just can't hold those positions as well. But, you know, if we can train in the most optimal positions, such as neutral spine for, say, a deadlift, then it's going to be really beneficial and you're going to build a lot more strength that way and you're going to get optimal activation of the muscles as well throughout the movement. Definitely. So with load, we don't want our spine to move. And then without load, like when we're stretching, performing exercise like cat-cows, we want our spine to move and, and rotate and twist and do all those things and, and stretch. Your body, we wouldn't have... Um, gone through evolution with bones in our spine like seven cervicals uh, 12 thoracic vertebrae and five lumbar vertebrae if human nature didn't want us to move our spine otherwise it would have just put a giant femur bone in our back and we would just not be able to bend forward and do anything and evolution probably would have made us extinct by then if we didn't have those uh, vertebrae and you can just see that you know that structure relates to the function of the spine so bending, twisting, doing things like that, it's actually good. With some athletes, they may have a sport that they only train one movement pattern. So I look at, I take Olympic weightlifting, for example, it's a very linear sport. You're moving up and down, everything's in a straight line. There's no twisting or bending at all. So in Brandon's rehab program, I actually get him to do some amount of rotation. So I get him to do some wood choppers so that he can improve that stability through his spine into that rotational plane so that if in the off chance he's doing a lift and he does happen to rotate just a little bit he's prepared for it and he's ready to kind of change that position so he's back into linear and then you look on the other end of the spectrum where you've got athletes who are twisting and rotating as a part of their sport you still want to work them in the linear planes as well so that then they can improve that strength in those linear planes, but then try and adapt it into their sport where you can. So whenever you're giving someone a program or technique, you want to make it individual anyway. That's, I guess, what we're trying to say there. So what are some negatives of chasing perfect technique then? 
when we're focusing on technique all the time, I find that if we, you know, force the like perf- perfection or, uh, you know, trying to achieve an ultimate lift where th- that doesn't really exist, whether it's like um, giving someone a cue all the time, um, it can be really distracting and it can be something that plays on a person's mind. So I find that when I go to a comp, it's probably the best um, way that I approach a comp whenever I'm taking someone through one, no matter how bad the lifts are, like they'll usually be pretty good. Even if they make, you know, unless they make something dramatically wrong, like a dramatic error, I'll always reassure them that they're doing it really well. And that gives them a lot of confidence knowing that, you know, yeah, I'm doing, like they're doing 80% of the thing really well. If they go out there and work their ass off on the platform and all that adrenaline kicks in, they're going to do awesome. If, if, you know, if you take someone and they're going to go for their third snatch and you tell them, you know, all the other snatches you've been doing this wrong on this next one, I need you to, you know, correct three, three things. It's going to be completely distracting. They're not going to get the lift. No way. So I find that the best approach is just really subtle and just chipping away at technique as, as more of a journey with, with someone and, and really just trying to work on it slowly. We want to keep all the basic things like, you know, correct bracing that's always important that needs to be done from the beginning and introduced as early as possible. Learning how to, you know, whether it's, you know, learning hook grip, keeping your arms straight in the snatch, keeping your arms straight in the clean, using your legs in the jerk. They're all common things. We know these are all general principles that will apply to everyone. But, you know, those little nuances like, oh, if your heels lift off slightly when you dip for a jerk. Those things can really play on someone's mind too much. So going down that rabbit hole of trying to achieve this ultimate technique can be really, really, can be can just have a negative impact on your, on your experience as a lifter uh, and can be really draining on you as a coach. So, you know, trying to understand is, well, you've already, tr- you've already improved this person's lift, you know, X amount of percent in the last 10, mi- 10 weeks. If they didn't have you, they wouldn't be lifting as good as they were now. So as a coach, you need to understand, well, what's a realistic expectation for you to put onto your lifters? Your lifters aren't going to lift like elite weightlifters because they're not elite weightlifters. They're going to lift like teachers or office workers or police officers. They're going to do their best. So you need to understand that and what's realistic. So I think trying to you know focus on the basics is going to yield really big results. Yeah, exactly. You know, you've got to be realistic with them and patient with them. And it can just provide so much psychological stress if you're always making someone feel like they're doing it wrong. And they'll, they just won't want to come back. You know, you've got to, you've got to make it achievable for them and got to make them, you've got to make it, like you said at the start, a compliment sandwich. You know, you're doing this and this right. Maybe we can work on this a little bit, but you're doing such a good job. I want you to keep going. You need to make them feel good about themselves. And you know, they're going to keep comparing themselves to others as well if you make them feel like it's they're not doing a good job. They're always going to look at someone else and think, oh, I wish I could do it like them. You want them to focus on their own technique, their own journey, um, because if they don't, it can really hold them back from what you want them to do and from just even achieving the movements or giving it a go. Um, I know in Pilates, I find that a lot of people talk about, oh, we want to do this perfectly. I really don't want to hurt myself. I want to make sure I've got perfect form. Pilates is one of those things that it's so safe. Like it's such a safe form of exercise. There's a reason we use it for rehab because there's not much that can go wrong. Like if you fall off the machine, yeah, that, you know, that can go wrong. But I've only seen that happen a couple of times and it's when people get too excited and carried away and they go too quickly for something. Whereas most exercises, um, they're going to be okay to move and they're not going to hurt themselves if they do it not 100% with this so-called perfect technique you know if their palms facing out or if their palms facing the other way 
they're still doing the movement, they're still going to get a benefit from it. Um, is it really a big deal if I have to go and change every tiny little thing for them in that particular movement? For me, it's getting them just moving, having a good time, moving safely, as long as they're not doing something, you know, overly dangerous, which again, Pilates is not super dangerous anyway, but as long as they're moving safely, they're having a good time, they're having a workout, that's all that really matters to me, unless I'm doing a rehab plan with someone. That's exactly right, Steph. We want to try and keep everything safe, as you mentioned. So do you want to talk to us about how you structure rehab plans? Yeah. So with rehab plans, again, it's super individualized depending on the person. Um, But the main thing, I guess, for a lot of rehab plans is we want to stretch a certain area or mobilize a certain area and then strengthen another area to try and correct imbalances for people. In terms of, say, an athlete, that's going to be super important because the tiniest little niggle is going to affect their performance. In your everyday person, it's a little bit easier because you can kind of work on those positions a little bit better. And often they really notice a difference. So for someone, say, for example, with neck pain, who's your everyday person, then I'm going to get them to work on keeping their shoulders down away from their ears. And I do want to focus more on that technique of squeezing their shoulder blades back. And I am going to be more focused on the positioning of their hands and the positioning of their body so that they can get that activation of their rhomboids so that then they're actually working that area to improve their posture or improve their positioning of their scapulothoracic area. For example, if I'm working with someone and we're working on glute activation, I know that's a really big kind of controversial topic at the moment, especially with fitness trainers. You know, glute activation tends to be a little bit of like overkill, I think with a lot of general gym goers. But in a rehab setting, it's actually quite important. A lot of people don't know how to activate their glutes. So I do have to spend a little bit more time with them, perhaps working on learning where their glutes are, number one, because a lot of people don't actually know where they are. And number two, what exercises they can do that work for them to switch their glutes on. And again, depending on their positioning, on what's going to aggravate them, what's going on, on their structure, their body, I might even have to change a certain exercise so that they can feel it a little bit better. So we are working on feeling a certain muscle a little bit more in a rehab setting and working on perfect form for that person But again, there's still variations on that perfect form anyway. So we still use things like props and try and work around what that person needs to get the benefit for them. I guess to summarize this podcast is, so how should you approach your technique in your training? And you should approach it with being consistent, focusing on the basic things like, you know, focusing on your breathing, focusing on bracing your core, whether it's with load and if you're doing Pilates, you know, trying to practice, you know, proper breaths, breathing through your diaphragm. Uh, and then, you know, the, the basic cues that your coach is telling you, working on those few bits of um, information that they're giving to you, not overloading yourself with cues. And then as you're building up in weight, this is important for working with load. You want to try and mimic each rep as best as you can. So we want to try and replicate all the reps to be as similar as possible so we can have really consistent technique. And that's going to help build those good habits. And that's all we want to try and achieve with with good technique. Exactly. It's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight, especially if you're just starting out with something. There's no way that it's going to look how you want it to perhaps at the start. So there's no reason that you need to stress yourself out and over obsess about getting a perfect technique because that doesn't exist. Every single person's movement and technique is going to look a little bit different and you need to make sure you're working with your own limitations and make sure you just do what's working for you. Just a reminder that I think it's in two episode times, two two episodes time. Oh, geez, 
on December 3rd, we're going to be getting into our book club, which is Why We Sleep. And that's going to be a really awesome episode. I'm reading it now and I'm going to have so many cool facts to start the podcast with. I've been writing them down. There's so many cool things you're going to learn. So I really encourage everyone to read the hard copy. If you don't, you can listen to the Audible version. It's free for 30 days if you get the trial. So just make a fake account and just use that. <laughs> make a fake account. Are you nearly finished with the book, by the way? No, I'm, I have to I'm 40 pages in and there's 40. 344. Brandon, I'm going to have to smash that book out in two days. Yeah, you will. That's so not Sorry, fair. You'll do it. You'll do it easy. Thanks so much, guys. See ya.